Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We partner with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2022, Dunstreet will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunstreet, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's podcast is also presented to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Who knew that using a different coloured pen would make your will invalid or that removing some staples means the document is no longer legally recognised? Morris Blackburn's expert lawyers know all the important tips and creating a will uh, easy. Uh, simply complete the online form and they'll arrange a time to discuss your needs and prepare your will and store it at no extra cost. Search Morris Blackburn Wills today to get started on your affordable lawyer written will. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns and issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. On today's show, we're joined by a good buddy of mine who's studying misinformation at ANU, he's doing a PhD on it, and he's going to just nerd out on misinformation, how it um, is a problem, uh, where it's a problem, why it's a problem, uh, and how we can uh, deal with it. Um, So check out today's episode on that. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. And if you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, uh, Podchaser, and Spotify. And Spotify is adding a five-star review system to their app uh, this year. So be sure to give us five stars when you're done listening to today's episode. Uh, For all the updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We're taping this one on a Saturday. Uh, It's that period uh, uh, between... um, well, it's not even between now because it's sort of in the new year, but it's still that period where I don't know what time or day it is of the week because um, I'm still on leave. And in fact, um, we're doing, I'm being a bit cheeky this year because we're recording a lot of our episodes earlier because I'm pissing off, hopefully pissing off overseas for a bit of a break. Um, so I've pre-loaded all of my episodes. So it doesn't really matter when I'm taping this, to be honest with you. I'm just taping it and now you're listening to it. And that's that's just the magic of podcasts. Uh, but my guest uh, on today's show was actually a, a good friend of mine um, uh, who, um, uh, among many other things, um, has um, spent a lot of time working um, in government and um, through the Labor Party, uh, but currently is um, studying a PhD at ANU on misinformation. And there's so much misinformation that is going on right now. I thought, well, let's get him on the show to have a bit of a yak about it. But more importantly, he's um, a fellow student uni alumni and a fellow uh, original Aussie for Obama, um, 2008, that that road trip that you could believe in. Matt Nurse, welcome to Socially Democratic. Thank you very much for inviting me, Stephen. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. Hope you're doing well. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm getting there. It's very warm at the moment, so I'm just coming to terms with uh, uh, Melbourne summers again, which we haven't really had up until this point, so that's sort of multiple 30 eight days and a 38 degree temperature in a row is kind of having a impact on me. But anyway, I'll survive. Well, for, for this PhD project I'm doing, I moved up to Canberra. So um, we have much more moderate temperatures and um, 
I went for a mountain bike ride today and a jump in the pool, and it was lovely and much better than yesterday. Yesterday, I had to drive from Melbourne to Canberra, and we managed to do that without stopping in New South Wales because they've got a bit of an outbreak at the moment. We didn't want to get infected with that. I know. It's the trials and tribulations, right, of trying to do uh, any kind of travel, whether it be domestic or interstate, um, negotiating all of the different um, re- rules and regulations. I'm going through all of that right now, trying to get a, ourselves to uh, Southern California. But, so we'll see. If, if, I, if I am successful, if you're listening to this podcast right now, I am, hopefully will be in Southern California, or maybe I won't be. Anyway, let's, 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 um, let's get into, into today's uh, episode. Um, uh, misinformation. What brought you to want to study this uh, particular topic uh, and do a PhD on it at ANU? Um, well, look, I had a perfectly serviceable public service career um, until recently where I was a communications director and part of that was I was doing a lot of emergency work and emergency planning. And, for example, you know, the 2019 bushfires, I was, I was working on that sort of stuff. And there's lots of misinformation in emergencies, like in moments when... Um, there's a whole lot of fast-breaking things happening at once and nobody's quite sure what's going on. It creates this huge vacuum for misinformation. And I don't know if you remember at the time, but there was all this debate about um, are these fires caused by climate change or something else, or is it arson or is it, you know, lightning strikes? And, you know, that's kind of an interesting kind of debate to have a little bit, except that when people are trying to decide do I need to actually get out of here quickly or not, and this is dominating the airwaves, it is frustrating for comms people. So uh, that's really my motivation. I I came into it um, wanting to do a project on misinformation to do with climate change. Um, But, and in fact, the day that I turned up on campus, they handed me an N95 mask and I said, oh, is this for the bushfires that were at that stage surrounding Canberra? Um, Or is it uh, because of this this COVID thing that I've just heard about? And they said, oh, it's probably a bit of column A, a bit of column B. So um, I changed the project to be about COVID. Um, because I guess one of the things I was thinking about was, you know, if something really bad happened, like a pandemic, then getting on top of um, misinformation would be would be quite important. And then when it actually did happen, I thought, well, I might as well just study this, right? I might as well research this. Yeah. How do you, what do you, what do you define as misinformation? Well, uh, it, it's interesting because it's um, a term that really took over from fake news. So fake news, there was a lot of sort of, debate about that and academic research about it and then trump kind of called everything fake news and we had to come up with a new term because no longer meant anything Um, but misinformation is information that's not accurate at the time that it's that it's transmitted okay so um this is different to disinformation disinformation is when people actually know that what they're saying is incorrect and they're sharing it to harm so for example so the herald sun for the last 20 years I'll let you put them into the category. (laughs) But Russian troll farms are a classic, right? Russian troll farms are out there spreading stuff at the moment that is clearly they know it's wrong and they're actually trying to cause harm. That's disinformation. Um, Misinformation is basically just lies that you don't know whether it's it's true or not. There's another thing called malinformation, which is when you're sharing true information to cause harm and sometimes, you know, spies do that sort of stuff. Um, But, yeah, it's basically information. The other thing I guess it's important to know is that it's the message itself. So it's not your beliefs. It's actually, you know, what's being transmitted in the communication process. So hang on a minute. So I get my head around this. Can misinformation come from disinformation? Yeah, 100%. So like if a Russian troll farm says that vaccines aren't safe, for example, 
and people share that, it, it transmits from being disinformation to misinformation and it can be blurry and it's one of the challenges of this sort of stuff. The other thing that's a bit weird is that misinformation, um, if it's incorrect at the time that it's broadcast but then it's found to be correct later on, that's still misinformation even though it's later on found to be true. So, you know, it's a little bit weird but that's basically it. I mean, so... Why has this become such a problem now? I mean, surely there's been a problem with both disinformation and misinformation historically for, for you know, for as old as time itself, right? But what, has it become a, such a greater problem right now? What has led that to be the case? Yeah, I think you're 100% right. Like one thing we know about humans is that when there's an incentive to lie, humans will lie, right? And that's shown time and time again. It goes back to ancient times, Um but the ability to share misinformation now and the incentives to do so are massively different in 2021, 2022 compared to, you know, when the printing press was invented or when people were writing on stone walls. Um, so, like, I can pick up my phone and on the train I can read misinformation, I can share it, I can produce it, I can do that on the toilet, I can do that in meetings, I can do that in classrooms, mm. you know. I can do that while pretending to listen to my mum on the phone. You can do it 24-7 practically, and there are people that almost do that. So the availability of that new technology where you can share something with a click and you can write something in less than a minute um, means that there's a lot of misinformation out there. But the other thing that's really important about this is that in the past, when people have had some crazy ideas, they haven't been able to find a community for those ideas. Okay, um, you know, living in a country town as you did, you know, there was probably some people there who were quite crazy and they'd go to the local newspaper and the local newspaper would probably tell them to get nicked because it didn't stack up. Mm. Nowadays, you can say things that are completely bananas and you'll find people saying, oh, yeah, well, that sounds sensible to me or I believe that too because there are so many people out there. You only need to get 100 people to start liking something and all of a sudden, you know, you get that adrenaline kick from people going, oh, yeah, you know, this person really agrees with my crazy idea that there are lizard people controlling the world or whatever it is that you might think. So finding a community of people for your crazy ideas or or even only slightly crazy ideas is, is really easy to do these days. And mostly, I'm assuming, because of social media. I mean, my theory, and I'm hoping you can either support this or blow this out of the, out of the water, but I just felt like prior to the internet, all of the nut jobs out there were all isolated and they were living in their own little pockets and they weren't able to get organized in, 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 in the true sense of the word. And it was the internet that's brought them all together. And now that we've sort of seen them being able to coordinate that, and I guess an example of that would have been the protests in Melbourne over the course of the, um, during the, 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 uh, the anti, the, the campaign against the pandemic bill that the government was trying to get through, that the internet was able to bring those people together and for them to then organize themselves because we always know that these nutjobs had these crazy views and you and I are both handed out on election day. That's, this is when you get to meet these people. You stand on a polling booth for 12 hours. Eventually, you're going to see, you know, society's kind of crazy theories. Normally, they're handing out for the um, One Nation Party <laughs> or the CEC. But, yeah, they're out there, right? And I think – has, has the internet been a big catalyst to bring this group together? Yeah. Um, when I was thinking about what I was going to say um, on this podcast, that was one of the things I actually wrote down. So I 100% agree with you on all of that right, um, that these people are now getting organised. They're using the internet not only to broadcast messages, you know, about whatever, the vaccines aren't safe and effective or that the virus isn't real or whatever whatever the hell, 
Um, but now they're starting to really meet each other. And I think that example that you bring up of those protests in Melbourne is really good because you had a, a complete blamange of people. You had, you know, right-wing nutjobs. Um, you probably had some left-wing nutjobs there too. You had anti-vaxxers. You had all sorts, you know, just contrarians. You had people who wanted to try to create media platforms for themselves. And now they're all meeting each other, yeah, somewhat physically, um, but much more on the internet. So, you know, a lot of those people got kicked off Facebook or, or Twitter where we were quite aware of who those people were and what they were doing. Now they're sort of organising on platforms like um, Telegram and Gab where the rest of the community is not involved in that conversation, but they're using them as organising platforms, aren't they? Mm. You know, they're getting to, um, uh, well, organise physical events like protests, which is another form of communication to show their power, which is very much you know, using some of the principles that you that you teach. I don't know whether they're actually mindful of that sort of stuff, but that's what they're doing. They're organising themselves. Um, do we, think, thinking about the, 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 the connection between disinformation and misinformation, I, I'm assuming that there is a central group... <laughs> I don't even know if it's even as coordinated as this, but there are there are people that are creating disinformation with intentionality to mislead, but deliberately then bring a cohort of vulnerable people into that, which then I'm assuming then they take that disinformation and make it misinformation by spreading it to their family and their friends, their neighbourhood, you know, and on the what those Facebook groups that we've all got that uncle or auntie that's saying some crazy batshit stuff where we're all kind of going well Nelly let's just slow the, you know <laughs> that kind of moment where you slowly distance yourself physically or in the room from a conversation but on social media it's kind of it's a bit more subtle than that we just start unfolding those people uh, is, is that the journey that it takes place or, or or are people actually just not doing it with intention to mislead but are doing it with intention because they truly believe this I don't know what, what's going on here the mix of that stuff and ultimately it's really hard to tell who's a genuine believer and who's just a charlatan um so th there's a lot of um misinformation that comes from just 12 people in the united states people like um um uh, robert kennedy and um dr Oz and people like that i don't know if people know who those people are but basically there are some of those people who are definite believers that for example vaccines are dangerous and i need to be on this mission to to talk about that mm -hmm. um there are some people who quite clearly have a financial motive for this um and whether those people really believe it or not we, we'll never know because even if you ask them you know they're going to lie to you or or you won't be able to tell whether they're lying or not so it's very difficult um there's another thing that happens too which is called bullshit that's the actual academic term which is where <laughs> people just don't care whether it's true or not and they just don't care they have a particular attitude that they need to defend and um, they don't spend any time trying to check those facts or not. They just go, oh, yeah, well, you know, that says the government's fucked, so I'll, I'll agree with that mm. and I'll share it. You know, it's funny because I've been uh, – my producer, Rebecca, has been on me about this for a while. She's been saying we need to do a podcast on misinformation. It's like a, it's a, it's a big thing. And I've been really reluctant just because I've always felt that it's a parody. Like, you know, that scene out of – one of my favourite films, So I Married an Axe Murder, the father played by, the Scottish father played by um, uh, uh, um, Mike Myers, 
he's talking to his, you know, his mate. It's a, you know, it's a well-known fact, Sonny Jim, that, you know, the world is run by, you know, these five families. The, uh, they meet in a, it's known as the Pentavirate. And they meet in a place known as, a secret location known as the Meadows. And it involves the Queen, the Geddes, the Rothschilds, the Vatican, and Colonel Sanders before he went tits up. It's like, it's, that's a comedy piece in a film. And it annoys me now that we've got to have to talk about these stupid people who believe this shit. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's absolutely bananas. And and like we sort of struggled for a long time to get our heads around as a as I guess an academic community that people just writing dumb shit on the internet was actually going to have some major problems in the future because it is so stupid, so easy to punch through. Um, so like you know, let's go to Pizzagate because that's the most obvious example. People were seeing that um, there was this whole conspiracy that um, Hillary Clinton and her chief of staff were eating babies in the basement of a pizza parlor in DC and thought, well, the, this is just, you know, kids doing stupid stuff on the internet. But where it becomes harmful is when it turns into actual behavior. And this is something that unfortunately took a while for people to really click on to. And, and the Pizzagate example is a perfect example because what eventually happened is a guy turned up with an AR-15 and started shooting the locks of a restaurant in downtown Washington trying to get into what he thought was the basement where Hillary Clinton was eating his babies. And you say that stuff and you think, why am I, like, why am I even entertaining this as an idea? But what we've found, you know, since that time and onwards is that there are plenty of crazy ideas that have massive impacts on how we, we live our lives as a society. Um, one of the things that um, is a bit of a missed opportunity until now is that a lot of the research on misinformation looked at political stuff, and obviously so because Trump, you know, was out there saying all kinds of stuff that was obviously not true, and that is very harmful because um, it might affect how people vote, and it might affect things like trust in institutions. But when it's a topic of science, it can be even worse. So, like, think about um, vaccine coverage rates. The difference between having 95% of the community vaccinated and 97% of the community vaccinated is absolutely massive. Mm. In political contests, it's usually just a binary thing. And yes, the 5% around 50% plus one is important. But in topics of science, every little percentage point can really count, particularly on something like vaccines. So um, there's a real lack of research into that. And that's why I guess I came to research vaccinations. I mean, climate change first, but vaccinations is an even better example. Um, to try to find out to what extent it's actually having an effect on behaviour, because if we don't get on top of this, you know, when we eventually have an even worse pandemic, you know, maybe 10 years down the track, this could literally leave millions of people dead if we don't actually understand why this is happening and what we can do about it. So from your research, what have you discovered in terms of the kinds of misinformation that's being spread in the community around COVID-19? So um, there's a range of different um, ways that misinformation shows up and why people um, believe in it. Um, and there's a range of different types of misinformation, right? So the classic misinformation either says that risks that are real are not real, or risks that are not real are real. And like, for example, um, this plays out a lot with um, treatments for COVID. So some people say, uh, if you just boil up some mandarin peels and drink that, then that will cure COVID. Yeah. On the other side of the coin, they'll say that vaccines aren't effective. So those sorts of things are really dangerous. 
they're also like really, really um, strong flashpoints where it leads to massive problems. Um, in Iran, they um, heard from a guy on the internet in Hong Kong that alcohol um, prevents COVID. Okay, so there's a guy who said, oh, I drink a lot of whiskey and I never got COVID. And that was his evidence. And these people in Iran, where you can't get legal alcohol, bought a whole lot of bootleg grog. And unfortunately, it's really hard to tell what is the alcohol percentage in bootleg grog. And literally 700 people, more than 700 people died in Iran by drinking this stuff that, you know, is clearly never going to affect COVID, but actually led to whole communities dying. Um, and it's just, it's again, one of those things that you, you say the words and you think this is absolutely bananas, but it has actually led families to be you know, decimated by I, the outcome of that sort of stuff. I, I genuinely do think that the two shots that I've had plus a staple diet of martinis each day has just ensured I'm a little bit pickled and it, I'm definitely not going to get COVID. So I'm just going to push back on that one, Matt. I don't think you, I don't think you're right there. I think that... I mean, never leaving your apartment probably has an effect as well. <laughs> that also that also has helped. That is true. That has also helped. Yeah. Anyway, uh, what other impacts have we seen in terms of uh, the misinformation that has um, undermined the, the health effort when it comes to um, trying to deal with this global pandemic? Um, I think that we're seeing some serious erosion of trust in institutions. Like topics of science are never just topics of science. They're also topics of politics. They always are. Um, and I think that we're seeing a serious erosion of trust in um, governments. And that that's a particularly worrying thing because one of the things that, like I've done some experiments, one of the things that comes out of that is that one of the um, factors that you know people who share misinformation have strongly is that they don't trust governments. So you're kind of going to get this sort of snowballing effect where we've had this big event, people are less likely to trust governments. It looks like trusting governments is one of the reasons why people share misinformation and on it goes. So that can actually, um, th that's one of the things I'm really worried about because I guess I understand why trusting government's important. And also I'm interested in misinformation. The relationship between those two things seems to be quite strong. I thought that in the early parts of the pandemic, there was, a, I mean, I don't think there were academic studies, but they were sort of, you know, sample focus groups and, you know, sort of research, that kind of sort of research, qualitative, quantitative research that showed that, that there was a greater trust developing in government uh, than in than outside of the pandemic. But yeah, so, so you're, you're telling me that that's not the case, that people are um, starting to find that they have less trust in government because of there are small pockets of people who probably didn't trust the government very much at the moment now they really don't trust the government um whereas there are lots of other people who you know trust the government more so overall it's one of the problems with looking at averages so if overall the level of government trust may well have gone up but the, when you look at misinformation you're looking at small pockets of people and those small pockets are starting to feed off each other and go well we can never trust the government again that kind of thing okay that's which interesting is, which is quite worrying so then who are the kinds of people that are being sucked in to this misinformation? So this is the stuff that I'm really interested in. I guess because I'm a comms person, I'm really interested in audiences for things and understanding them to the best of my ability, right? So um, I published a paper in July which had a look at a particular thing called cognitive reflection, which is how much do people actually analyse stuff that they're presented with? So there's a particular test that I got people to do called the cognitive reflection test. And um, in that test, there's 
an answer that's really hard to find. You need to think carefully to get it. And there's a more obvious answer that's wrong. And so I did that with all those people. And then I gave them, I showed them five bits of misinformation, five statements from public health authorities like the Department of Health and things like that and the World Health Organization. I mixed it up so it was randomised. And what I found was that people who weren't good at um, reflecting on things, weren't great at analytic thinking, were those people who are much more likely to share misinformation, which makes a hell of a lot of sense, right? Um, Because you would expect people who are somewhat gullible to be sucked in by this stuff. But there's another another thing that happens with um, misinformation, which is quite interesting, which is um, where you can actually use your analytic thinking skills to defend what you want to be true, even if it's totally wrong. And, and to some extent, we all do this, right? So like I'm a mad keen demon supporter and if had a, someone had a told me, you know, in September last year that we weren't going to win the flag, I'll defend that position no matter what evidence came to me. And, you know, I'd probably use my analytic thinking skills to defend it, right? So we have these hot button issues. Um, so sometimes issues, particularly political issues, get like that where being smarter or more analytic analytic in your thinking is actually a reason why you would fall for for things and that hasn't happened yet in australia with covid um but it's one of the things that i'll be looking for in the coming stages of the project to see if these things become so polarized and people are so strongly identified with their positions that they'll actually use their intelligence to defend uh, complete rubbish that's fascinating so I think it is, but I'm biased. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, I just uh, that's that stuns me. That 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 that's. I mean, when you were doing that uh, paper, did you did you consider that that was a possibility? Yeah, I did, and in fact, I tested for it, but couldn't find any evidence for it. Um, I wanted that to be true, and I couldn't find it. Um, but I, in a previous study I did on climate change, uh, I did I did find that in Australia, where people fell into their their little camps. And intelligence would actually be an Achilles heel because it made people more likely to fall for misinformation on that topic. And so I collected the data for that COVID study in March last year, sorry, May last year. I reckon if I did it now and if I chose my questions carefully enough, I would find some people who, no matter how smart they were, would defend positions that were based on misinformation. Because, I mean, Twitter is a space where you can, because it is so polarised, you can see people who look like uh, people with authority sharing information. Um, you know, the old joke you used to make about it when you run a campaign, if you want to say, you know, run a doctor, then always chuck the stethoscope in the campaign sh- shots, you know. Those kind of photos are in their, in their, their Twitter handle. Um, and they sound like they're speaking with authority. But there's sometimes there where... You know, someone's pointed out oh, that's that's absolute garbage. Um, what they're what they're saying, and one thing I've actually found interesting during this whole COVID debate is that there's been a bit of a debate about how to handle the pandemic from the medical profession. Uh, there's there's no consensus, uh, and I, I wonder how much that plays into undermining the health effort of you know the the, the chief medical officer in, in, in our, all of our various states and, and and it's not just one person it's not they're obviously a body of people that sit around every day trying to work out well, what do we do next right but there's always someone from say Deakin University there's a couple of a couple of uh, medical people who are maybe epidemiologists or I'm not sure but are constantly undermining 
the health message. And I feel like saying, well, why don't you get in the room and have that conversation with those people as well? Yeah, a um, couple of things on that. I think what you're saying is exactly right. I've felt frustrated about this myself. So um, there's this idea that science is like really clear-cut stuff, right? Because when we study science in year eight, you know, we're learning about, you know, evolution or whatever, and it's this is the fact and science proved it sort of thing. However, science, when it's actually been put together, is actually really messy. There's, there's this whole debate and it's uncertain and it's tentative and people are criticising. But at the moment, because we're in a pandemic and because everybody's got a Twitter account and Facebook and everything else, they're out there saying, well, I think this study's wrong because of this and I think this person's, you know, too biased because of that. And it's all happening out in the public. And the poor public sitting there going, this is complicated enough as it is, let alone seeing like five different people with five different positions on you know one thing that suddenly popped up as a potential cure for example like i've admitted um and and i think that's really unfortunate really really quite quite difficult and i guess the other thing is everyone's got different risk perceptions right and appetite for risk so there are epidemiologists who are like we've got to shut everything down no matter what there are some people who are saying we've got to open it up no matter uh, what happens and there's everything in between because humans are just different people and, and ultimately yes they're all informed by by the numbers of science but they're people as well mm. you know and and of course they're they're biased you know some of these people might have kids at home who are really struggling and that might bias their thinking but um it's really difficult when you're on twitter and there's somebody who's professor this and doctor that and blah 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 the other thing is that you know Professors and people who've got PhDs and whatnot, they sometimes go crazy, right? So some of these people who are out there saying stuff, they don't make a lot of sense to anybody. But it's really hard to unpick what they're saying if you're not trained in that particular field of science. And there often aren't many people who are, you know, virologists. I don't know any virologists, for example. Um, and so when somebody gets up there and says, oh, well, here's a graph and here's some numbers and blah, 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 and we should all do this, it's really hard for anybody who's not, you know, well-trained in that particular field to know if that's accurate or not. And so spotting misinformation is, is really, really important skill to, to develop. And um, you can pick up some skills on how to do that. Um, but it's really hard when that misinformation aligns with what you want to be true. So you've got to get into this position where you go, all right, well, I want this to be true, but I need to test it. And I think that's a really good process to go through. And in fact, that's that's what scientists do. So when you go through the scientific method, um, I think we're the only field where we have to collect as much evidence as we can to prove that our hypothesis is false, right? So in other fields, you know, for example, um, a barrister in a court, they need to get up there and defend their client's position. So they're presenting evidence in favour of their preferred argument. And sometimes journalists do this too. Like, for example, um, you know, you see in summertime, people say, oh, you know, this fat diet, um, let's hear from three people who lost weight on this diet. And they don't go and interview a bunch of people who didn't lose weight on the diet, for example, or found it really challenging. Mm. Right? So I think when we're in a situation where we've come across something, we want something to be true, and we've found some evidence for it, we need to be really careful that we're also looking at what is all the evidence for that not being true. And then look at it in a kind of cold, objective way. Um, but, but there are some things, one of the things that I kind of don't want people to really take out of this is that we should go around playing misinformation whack-a-mole. 
So there's so much misinformation out there. Um, in fact, more than 15,000 claims about just COVID have been debunked in two years. So there's this huge effort from um, fact checkers to go around trying to, you know, whack every false claim on the head. And I think that that's um, useful, but probably not the greatest use of time to go out there doing that. Instead, it's probably better to look at the kind of people who are sharing this sort of stuff and get a bit of an idea of how much you can trust them. But doing that in quite a clinical way. How so? Um, so one of the things that people do is they quite often share misinformation that's contradictory. Okay, so um, if you go through and have a look at the claims that have been made by people in the past, you can quite often find that they're making a claim today that's contradictory to one that they made in uh, six months ago. <laughs> and that's basically because they have a lack of cognitive dissonance. They're not aware that they are holding two positions that are in conflict with each other. Let me give you an example. So there are people who say that um, COVID uh, is a Chinese-developed bioweapon, right? But those people also say sometimes that the virus only causes cold-like symptoms. Now, I, I refuse to believe the Chinese military has invented a bioweapon that just gives you the cold, right? It just, just doesn't make sense. Mm. So if you have a look at stuff like that, you can kind of unpick um, the kind of person who's doing this. They're just spreading stuff, right? They're not actually holding deeply held convictions. Um, often they have what's called an overriding suspicion, and that is they just cannot accept that anything that governments or scientists or medical professionals is, is true unless it fits with their own account. So they're sort of cherry-picking stuff, mm. um, and they don't have accuracy goals in mind, okay? So they're not really trying to find out what is true. They're trying to defend their position. Um, the third one is nefarious intent. So this is um, that every conspiracy they find has some sort of negative outcome, right? So the people who are working together behind the scenes are doing that to cause you harm rather than to actually cause any kind of benefits. Yes, there are secret meetings between scientists and governments on, you know, the pandemic, but ultimately what they're trying to do is get this bloody thing over. Well, you'll never hear that from, you know, someone with... Um, who shares a lot of misinformation. Um, persecuted victims, so they often play this persona that they're actually being persecuted by people. Um, and even if they're being largely ignored, uh, the one that I think of here is, is Pete Evans. So, like, I don't think anyone really cares what Pete Evans says these days, um, but he's continually on his Telegram account going, oh, the government doesn't want me to say this. And the government's like, we don't even care. Like, mm -hmm go and say whatever you want to say. Like, you're not a major priority at the moment. Um, it's it's kind of like the, the Galileo fallacy, right? So um, they kind of say that because people are trying to shoot me down, I therefore must be right. Um, but for every Galileo who was wrongly persecuted, there are like thousands of arrogant people who just persist with, with idiocy, mm. even though they've been proven wrong. Why would, sorry, do you want to finish that thought? No, no, ask me a question, go. I was going to say, why, why do people want to share information? Like even, I mean, I'm on social media, but I don't tend to, I'm quite conservative with the things that I like or share or, you know, well, certainly, sorry, retweet. I guess yeah. when I like, I guess when I like something, I'm sort of, it'll pop, probably pop up in someone's feed anyway. But like, I, 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 what drives a person to want to share misinformation? So there's this idea that um, there's an adrenaline hit that's sort of been baked into 
social media. Um, there's like if you post something on social media and you have zero likes, you kind of think to yourself, oh, maybe a bit boring or or something. Mm. Um, and if you post something that's you know, going to get a real reaction, even if you get a real negative reaction, you're like, whoa, look at this. You know, you've probably got family members that sort of say, oh, you know, I went I, I went to the football today and it was a good game and nobody really cares. And then you see other people on social media who say, well, you know, I think um, Dan Andrews has been abducted by aliens. And there's, you know, all of a sudden this whole debate happening on your feed and you're like, well, I'm suddenly relevant. So I think it's partly that, that they want to feel like um, they're being contrarian um, and that they're actually having some sort of, you know, relevant thoughts that, that, that they're broadcasting. And also the feeling that they've got special knowledge, like we all love to have special knowledge, inside knowledge of, of how things happen. And it's part of the reason why I like doing research, because, you know, you're the first person to discover a certain thing. Um, but why go through all the hell of research when you can just publish that you know the certain thing and you just put it out there on the internet? And I think that's part of the reason why they do it. Often it's very politically charged stuff. So, you know, um, people love having political debates. Who doesn't? Um, probably a lot of people, probably not a lot of people that live, listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, and so I think that it's, that it's really that, you know, the, the incentives of social media are all on the side of getting attention. And when you get attention for being a bit weird and out there and contrarian, then that's what people tend to do. You're a former uh, media advisor uh, to um, government. Uh, on our side of the fence. I, I wonder what your thoughts are when you observe the role of journalism and journalists in stoking the fire of misinformation or in some cases doing the good work of you know, calling out the bullshit. There was one thing I noticed during uh, the, the period last year when Premier Dan Andrews uh, injured himself and I think it was one of the liberal state liberal MPs put out a press release with a series of you know questions that basically called uh, was you know saying calling bullshit on Daniel's injury and throwing up a whole bunch of other crap right which I'm not even going to bother going to because it's just pointless. But then I saw a journalist uh, then fact check or or I won't even call it fact check but then had done some of their own investigative work about whether or not an ambulance was called uh, and said, oh, look, I've checked it out. The ambulance did come from this location or whatever. And I messaged them offline and said, oh, come on. You're not, don't, you're like, just even retweeting it is just fanning this garbage. Now, they probably thought they were doing the right thing by actually just checking it out. But I was, they ended up calling me up and we had a conversation about it. I said, I just, I just think this is, this is insane. This is absolutely insane. First of all, it's insane that a mainstream centre-right party is actually stooping so low to fan this sort of ultra-right-wing bullshit, but for then for the fourth estate to then then give it some platform as well doesn't help. And I'm wondering what, what are your thoughts on the role that journalists should play in countering this misinformation, but also ensuring that they continue to uh, communicate correct information to the wider public so people can make informed decisions. Because I think that, I think a lot of our listeners would think that the Herald Sun and broadly speaking, the Murdoch Press have uh, um, continually undermined the health message of the government uh, and have been very inconsistent by being highly critical of the Labor government and letting Scott Morrison get off scot-free, pardon the pun, uh, but also giving some people some platforms 
that are spouting misinformation. And I think that's incredibly disappointing given that they are critical to our democracy. I don't, what, what are your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, like, I think Google's got to be incredibly careful about this sort of stuff. Um, one of the things that's come out of the whole debate about climate change is that in those moments when there's been a news story about some crazy theory about um, climate change and they've given that a platform, but it's been completely debunked by, you know, all sorts of experts. When people read a story like that, they think it's a 50-50 thing, okay? You can test people and these tests have been done and published in papers that show that giving a platform, even if it's a small platform where they're, they're being hit on the head, people think, oh, there's a debate here. And I think for that reason, journalists have a responsibility to be really careful about the sort of stories they write, even if it is a sort of we're debunking this crazy idea that, you know, a political party is putting in a press release, Um I think that that whole episode was actually extremely irresponsible. Um, what a journalist could do instead is make some inquiries about it, figure out that this is actually not true, and then not publish a story about it, right? I think that that's just part and parcel of what a, a journalist does. There's a, there's, a, there's a phrase that I'm not going to get quite right, but it's something like journalism uh, isn't uh, hearing a debate about whether it's wet outside or not. Your job is to actually find out whether it's raining, right? And if it's not true don't publish it mm. it, it it's like i remember having these conversations as a media advisor this is back in the you know 2005 to 2010 kind of era where you know someone would put some sort of crazy idea to you and it was you, you know misinformation and you're in this position that if you if you deny it then they're going to run your denial and so you have to try to talk a journalist out of it and you can't do that because all the incentives for journalists is to is to publish something right they've got to fill a newspaper and make it interesting the only thing you can do in that situation and this is this is the hard and frustrating grind of being a media advisor and in fact just working in government is to find enough interesting stories about stuff so that journalists don't go and chase every kind of crazy bit of misinformation out there yeah. And it's really hard because, you know, often you're in a situation where you're in day 112 of saying, can you please go and get vaccinated? And it's really hard to make that new and interesting. But you've got to try to find ways of making that interesting again, uh, newsworthy again, so that journalists aren't in that situation where they feel that they've got to chase the one lead they've got and it's and it's spurious and stupid. <laughs> I like the idea of, um, yeah, it's like with children when they want to get up to no good and you're trying to get interested in something else completely different. Um, you're doing the same thing to, to journalists. and I'm not directly drawing any parallel between journalists and children. <laughs> <laughs> I might be. Um, what else can we do about misinformation? Where do we go from here? What's the, what, um, what's the, what's the you know, tell me the good story, Matt. Okay, so there, there are two good things. Um, there was a big debate about whether or not actually just correcting things is useful or not um, for a couple of reasons. One, because whenever you correct someone, you have to talk to them about that bit of misinformation that's already in their head. And what you don't want to do is remind them of that. Like psychologists tell us that you don't want to continually re remind people of something because they'll believe it's true and something called the illusory truth effect, right? So there was this caution around doing that. And also there was this idea that was called the backfire effect, which is if I challenge you on your ideas, then you will um, feel them more strongly, you'll believe in them more strongly because you've had to formulate your response and vocalise it and it becomes part of your identity. However, those two things have actually proven not to be true. So the, the latest research, which is stuff that's only happened in the past year or so, says that if, if you correct someone's 
um, misinformed beliefs that can actually make them less likely to believe them. So I'd actually encourage people to actually have conversations with people who um, are a bit unsure and are interested in finding out the truth about something to try to sort it out with them. You know, if it's a crazy conspiracy theorist, do not talk to those people, just leave them alone. You're not going to have any effect on them, most likely. But if there's someone who, you know, starting to fear, believe something, then actually do talk to them about what the truth is, uh, which I think is a really good thing. It's kind of a simple thing, isn't it? Like, you know, someone's kind of starting to fall down the rabbit hole, just have a chat to them. But I think one of the things we forget in fighting misinformation is that just having a one-on-one -on -one conversation is much more effective than writing a blog or going through the news media or um, using social media or something else where you rely on someone, you know, finding it. And interpersonal conversations, um, as you well know, Stephen, have much more of an effect than any other form, form of communication. Okay, so if there is somebody in your family or friendship group, have a chat to them, you, you know, get all your arguments ready first. The other one is um, this idea called inoculation theory, which is using a bit of an analogy with how vaccines work to fight misinformation. So a vaccine works simply because you introduce the body to a weakened form of a virus. If you introduce a person to a weakened argument, then they are going to be much less likely to believe that later on. So if you can find something that's popped up that your um, friend might well come across too, that they might likely believe in, then if you can say, hey, I saw this thing on social media, it's obviously wrong because something, 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 something. And even better than that, if you can say this person's only sharing it because they've got a political motive to do it or they've got a financial motive to do it, and then you tell them what the truth is, that's something that's been empirically tested a lot and has shown to be incredibly effective. The challenge with that one, though, is that you've got to try to spot the misinformation before you, your audience comes across it. It's actually a really old idea. It's, it was first published in 1964, but because misinformation has become such a big issue, it's really exploded. Um, and I don't think there's a single study that's shown it not to be effective. Mm. So if you can preempt an argument like that, go ahead and do it. The problem is, is if you, you know, raise something and they never encounter it, you've wasted your time, but also you might have introduced the idea to your friend. So you've got to be, you know, you've got to play the probabilities on that. But it, that can work in mass communication as well. Um, so, you know, governments who are trying to have an impact on um, misinformation to do with the pandemic might well say, hey, someone's going to think this, someone's going to come across that. Well, if you can preempt that in some way, that would be an incredibly powerful thing to do. Yeah, it's interesting how we had uh, Christina Keneally on the show at some stage last year, I think it was last year, uh, and we were talking about the rise of right-wing uh, terrorism and the lack of uh, interest by our current federal government into putting, I guess, giving more financial support to our intelligence agencies to infiltrate those groups to find out more about them to, to address it because there's a fear that this is going to get out of hand. Compare that to the amount of money that we put into um, investing uh, in uh, giving money to our intelligence agencies to invest in sort of radical Islam and all, all that kind of stuff. Like this, th there is a greater threat from, you know, the far right than there is from, you know, radical Islam uh, is the argument. Um, and I'm just wondering about, because um, one thing I did notice from those couple of rallies that were in Melbourne over that period, that th horseshoe theory seemed to be coming to full effect. The hard left and the hard right were finding more commonality with each other 
around this anti-pandemic bill stuff uh, than the rest of us in the centre. Um, whereas they would think that they are diametrically opposed to each other, but the horseshoe theory being that they're at the bottom ends of the horseshoe and therefore they're actually closer to each other than they actually think. And I'm wondering what uh, governments can do in terms of a more, in, in to, in, going to that point that you just made about broadcast communication to try and just make sure that we hold the centre. Um, I mean, the first thing the first thing that governments should do is be good governments. And I know that sounds really stupid and obvious, but like unless you're actually delivering for people, unless you're actually making people's lives better, you then can't say to people that you're doing that. Okay, so those governments, like I look at New South Wales at the moment, I think they're going to have incredible problems trying to convince people from the far left or far right or, you know, people who are contrarians or whatever, that they're doing a good job because they have not been able to explain to me at least why they're doing some of the things they're doing so you've actually got to do a good job and you've then got to explain it to people the other thing is i think that political parties need to get a bit closer to these people like um you're not going to have you're not going to resolve a problem by not talking to them so we've got to find ways and i'm not sure what the mechanism is of getting to these people, getting in front of these people, explaining why some of the you know thoughts they have are not quite right, before they get incredibly entrenched in their positions, um, it's it's very hard now because you know you look at people like um, you know Dave Hughes and Andrew Bogart and people like that on on social media, and um, they've they've started these conversations where people are now very entrenched in their views. That the government's you know either hopeless or evil. Um, you know, and this is the challenge for all governments to some extent, except we've got a real crisis in those things at the moment. How we get through that, the only way of getting through that is actually talking to them and finding ways of doing that. Yeah, I mean, I 100% agree with you on that. I mean, I guess there are, to your point earlier on, there are some people who we've, we've just lost. We're just not going to bring them back from, from the brink, right? But there are a whole bunch of people that are susceptible to this misinformation that we do need to sit down and have conversations with them. And I think that, you know, that organising, uh, community organising, um, and uh, speaking with your neighbours, either during an election campaign or outside of the election campaign cycle, is so critically important. Uh, and the, the, you know, as a community organiser, political parties, centre left, social democratic political parties, anyway, and certainly not our opponents, should I think put more money and resources into organising because it's 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 hundreds of thousands of conversations that we need to be having. Not just, you know, a couple of, you know, not just 10,000. It's, you know, millions of conversations that need to be had with people in our neighbourhoods. Um, and the more conversations that we have, that we can then bring those people back to the centre and actually start to make informed decisions about who they vote for. Therefore, it makes our democracy much stronger um, and, 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 and strengthen our communities um, and not go down this path where you're, you're finding that it's hard for governments to get people to, to do things like take a vaccine for example, to save their yeah, lives. Yeah, um, I 100% agree with you on all that. And one of the interesting things is that like, scientists are known to be particularly bad communicators because, you know, they speak technical language. They often only speak to each other, all this sort of stuff. You know, politicians can be bad communicators, but scientists in general can be, can be find it really challenging. Mm. Um, however, there are some signs that they are trying to use some sort of community organising type model for this problem and for example um the community health networks in australia are doing some of this sort of stuff where they're meeting with people in their little communities like for example taking nurses to a football club for training and talking to them about you know 
what's the truth about the pandemic and what can we do about it? Um, and I saw this great program um, the BBC had on what was happening in London where they were sending particularly ethnic doctors back to their home communities and talking to them about the fears they had for their own communities as a doctor and someone who's, you know, studied this stuff and has seen the front lines rather than, oh, let's make an ad and it'll all go away, which, you know, I think we all know that that's not very useful. However, it might make some people in the government feel better. Yeah, I, I think there's a story in there. I think Daniel Andrews, when he was on the podcast late last year, sort of alluded to it a little bit um, when he was talking about the, the the strength of the community and how um, they were able to um, overcome some of the challenges that were presented by COVID. And what he was, and this is the, this is actually the, the comment that got taken out of context by the media, and then then yeah. that, which and then ran all these stories in the age and the hell sun and whatnot, which is great for us. Cause that's what ended up getting, you know, to pay the publicity, yeah, exactly. absolutely. But, <laughs> but the point he was making was, cause the question I was asking was, tell me about the leadership within the community that helped with the response to the pandemic. And what he was trying to say was that there's, there's this untold story of leaders, um, um, you know, multicultural leaders, um, faith-based leaders, uh, people of color uh, communities and their leadership that went into their communities and had one-on-one conversations with their community who were hesitant about either getting tested uh, because they're worried if they would get in trouble if they had COVID or taking the vaccine because they were uncertain about that. It was those one-on-one conversations that really ensured that the response uh, and meeting the challenges that the pandemic presented at that moment, because it keeps evolving and Omicron's a new one, uh, met those challenges at that time. And that's why it was successful. That was the point that Daniel was trying to make. Yeah. Um, and I just think that, yeah, absolutely. We need to, we need to be doing more in that. And those, those, those community health centers are critical in, in, in that work. I think what we need to do when this all blows over, hopefully it does sometimes soon, is to think about how would we support that in the future? So, you know, how could we recruit, for example, people who wanted to do this? How could we make them feel comfortable about having those sorts of conversations? What kind of material would they need? What what kind of advice could we give them when this information pops up or um, when people get angry, for example? Uh, at what point do you say to somebody, oh, I'm just not going to have this conversation anymore because I can see you're already set in your ways? Mm. You know, what kind of techniques work? Um, persuasion techniques or resistance to persuasion techniques. And I think if we were uh, better prepared in that kind of way, then when the next thing inevitably comes, hopefully we wouldn't be sitting there you know, relying on people just to have those one-on-one conversations on their own, but also like a feedback mechanism, like, like you know, the way you guys organise this is, is really impressive in politics where you get a whole lot of data back on what is actually working and what is not working, um, what's no longer worth trying and what's a real flashpoint that we need to get on top of. You know, if you had access to that kind of information, even if it was kind of, you know, anecdata rather than, you know, um, peering into individual people's thoughts, you know, that you'd have some, probably some issues with the Privacy Act there. But, you know, even if it was just some impressions that you could get out of these conversations, it was fed back to some, you know, group of people to, to try to give them some better advice for day two, day three, day four. I think that would be incredibly useful and it would be a missed opportunity if we didn't find a way of doing that. I didn't mean for this episode to eventually come to the point that um, community organising is the answer, but it, um, in some ways it certainly can play a, a role in um, in a... In, um... Well, you know, when there's a crisis, you've got to do everything at once. And one of the things I think is a real missed opportunity is exactly what you're talking about, because it uses that interpersonal communication that, that, you know, I know is is extremely effective. 
And I don't see much evidence of people trying to do that. I, I certainly don't see the Commonwealth trying to coordinate anything <laughs> like that. No, no idea. Um, because whenever something happens, it's straight to a TV ad. And, you know, it's, of course, when you call up the advertising people, they don't know how to do that communal, community organising type stuff. But it's actually not that hard if you have people who are willing to do it. You just, they just need to be shown the way and, and encouraged. Um if there was so, only some, you know, you know, campaign agency that specialised in it, Matt. Well, I'm struggling to think of one. Um. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Matthew Scott Nurse, it's been wonderful to have you on the show today. You said you were not going to be able to get 20 minutes worth of a show, and I just want to point out we're up to our 53rd, 53rd minute, so you've um, you've done very well. And I had plenty more questions to ask you, but we're going to have to leave it there for today because I know you need to get back to um, your uh, your time off. And um, But we wish you the best of luck with your PhD. Love to have you back on the show again, mostly just to wind up some of our friends that do want to come on the show but haven't been on. Um, but uh, other than that, keep keep up the good work and we'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks very much. It was fun. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.